What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Sapira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's funny. And it's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I am William Nogero. Bill, today we're going to talk about the Chicago Ripper crew. This was a group of Satanist weirdos. Pretty interesting case because it was a group of four guys, and I don't think we've seen that before. So we're going to talk about that and what made these guys want to do all that stuff. Before we get into it, I would like to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and check out our Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash deathrowdiaries. And for one more week, if you become a Patreon subscriber, we will cover the case that you request. And I'm still getting to all your guys' cases to the subscribers that have sent me stuff. Uh, it takes a little while to get the materials to Bill so that he can research them because, you know, they have to go through the snail mail and everything so you know don't don't stress or worry about it if you requested something if you subscribed we are in the process of getting to those and we will be doing them in the coming weeks now before we get into this case bill we have a few listener submitted questions that we want to tackle and so joe asked bill is there any serial killer that you weren't actually on the inside with that you would like to have spoken to. Um, not because you really want to talk to him for your own personal reasons, but you know, that you would have liked to talk to, uh, to study them. Yeah. Dissect them. You mean, or get into their heads. So yeah, absolutely. If you know, you have that little question and you can have lunch with anybody who would you have lunch with? Well, when it comes to this type of deal for me, of course, I don't want to have a conversation with Jack the Ripper. I want to know what it was that got this guy to have that particular tick. I'd like to know what made him really do the things that he did. I mean, they were, this wasn't a guy who just killed. He tore apart people. He completely obliterated the body. And these guys, the guys we're going to cover today, Chicago Rippers or the Ripper, Ripper Crew, you know, they, they did some really outlandish things and horrible things to women. So this is, I guess, why they call him the Ripper Crew. But Jack Ripper comes to mind. John Wayne Gacy, I never spoke to him. like to have had uh, some time to dissect him, to study him, to speak to him, to interview him. Um, you know, Ted Bundy is everybody's favorite. Uh, not so much with me. I think, you know, he wasn't as smart as people thought he was. I listened to some of the tapes where he talked and he spoke during his trial and he litigated on his behalf and 
know, as a, as a person who has a law degree, uh, I found him to be, you know, amateurish at best. Uh, I don't think he was that smart, so he would be a person I wouldn't want to really talk to. But, I mean, there, there's, there's a few other ones. I, I really would have liked to have spoken to um, Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, you know, the, the, the Milwaukee cannibal. I just, for some reason, he started very early on. He knew exactly who he was at a very young age, and he killed very early on. Um, and I would like to have really gotten into his head. So that's that's about three cats right there that I uh, that I think would have been very interesting to talk to. And one last one, and this is a, a blast from the past. There's a guy called the Lonely Hearts Killer, serial killer in the 50s. I would have loved to have spoken to him. So what is it about these guys? Is it just that they are outside the outside the norm, outside the box as far as the typical killer? Well, all of these guys have a unique sense of who they are. You know, with John Wayne Gacy, you know, he was a pedophile uh, guy who killed boys, teenage boys, but he, he buried them all in, under his house. Some of them he discarded, but most of them buried within crawl spaces of his home and right near him. Really would have liked to have gotten into his head about what he got out of it, what gratification came of this. I mean, I could sit here and give you the technical terms of what he got out of it and what I've learned from other serial killers, but I'd like to get in, get in his head about what he felt. Every serial killer is different. Sure, you could say, well, they sexualize uh, control, they do this, but each one is different. Um, so that's interesting. So you hear, you know, these, these experts talk about, you know, organized killers and killers that do certain things. Well, each one is different, so you can't know one serial killer and say, oh, this guy is identical to every serial killer that kills this way. So that's not true. That's why I don't pay attention to these guys who, or women who, who read a bunch of books and say, oh, you know, I've read over 150 books about serial killers. I'm an expert. Well, you know, Matt, if, if you have a, a heart condition and I read a few books about it, you going to allow me to you know, operate on you? No, no. Even if you had a degree, Bill, I wouldn't let you operate on me. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so those are just, just a few of the killers that I want to, you know, Milwaukee cannibal, again, a, a person who knew he, who he was from a very early age. I, I would like to speak to him to get a, a sense of who he was. Of course, he's dead. And, um, you know, the majority of these guys are all dead. So those are the guys I would like to speak to. John Wayne Gacy, uh, Dahmer, Jack the Ripper. So those are just a few. Cool. Uh, a couple more real quick. I can't remember if we tackled this question, but it's a good one to revisit real quick because um, I want to make sure I got to it. Trevor says, Bill, I really appreciate your insight and commentary and feel like you bring a lot to the table. And I feel as though you've been rehabilitated. Is there anything I or we can do that would actually help you get out? Wow. Really appreciate that question, Trevor, and I. But I can't tell you how much that means to me that you know someone uh, feels strong enough to ask. Um, at this point, right now, uh, there's really nothing we can do because we are going to the court systems, and you know, there's a lot of cases that are coming down that could favor me. But um, I will definitely put the alarm out or the bat signal for all the death row diaries listeners to when the when letters are needed. 
when uh, I'll be before maybe a committee or a board that they possibly could allow me out, I will definitely put out the bat signal and I'll ask all of you guys to write letters on how these these episodes and how Matt and I have touched your lives or at least giving you a little bit of insight to make you safer. So that's about it for right now, but I appreciate that uh, very much. I can't tell you how much it means to me that there are people out there that appreciate what we do and um, that would like to help me in some way. Thank you. Yeah, that would be cool if it got to the point where, you know, letters could help. And so we'll, we'll definitely keep monitoring that. Uh, last question. This is actually my question. And it occurred to me that um, when you were in San Quentin, you were working in the, not in the medical ward, but you, with the disabled um, inmates, right? Yes, it was the the ADA yard, which is the American Disabilities Act yard, and I was an IDAP worker, ADAP worker, which translates to Inmate Disability Assistant Program. I was one of the assistants, the only assistant on death row that would help um, people on this yard, uh, you know, function. It, it could be help them put their clothes on, help them with their shoes, push them around the yard, help them off the yard. So, yeah. Yeah, I was wondering with these serial killers and you were surrounded by a lot of them, you know, these guys are serial rapists. They're probably not using protection. They're involved with, um, prostitutes and exposed to blood all the time. Like do most of them have some kind of bloodborne disease, uh, HIV, AIDS, hepatitis, Ebola, these kind of things. Well, they could, of course. They do do. They do have medical facilities. San Quentin, probably one of the best in entire nations in terms of medical help or assistance uh, or medical care. Um, so, if they had some disease, they would probably get the best medical attention you can because they're on death row and because the state of California, as I've mentioned, uh, really invests a lot of money in people on death row. It's incredible that they spend how much money they expend on trying to kill these guys when they're really in fact they're not trying to kill anybody they're, they're going to kill anybody so uh, to answer your question I always wore latex gloves when I held these men I always um, when I even pushing the wheelchair I wore latex gloves I used cell block to clean my hands so I was very aware of what you're just saying right there that because these guys are such sexual fiends that they could easily have gonorrhea or other syphilis or whatever. of course those things could be cured too so now but yeah, HIV was something that scared me. Um, hepatitis scared me as well. So I was very cautious when dealing with them. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for the questions. And send us your cases. If you guys subscribe, we will get to them. And we'll get to the ones already sent. Thank you, everybody, for that. So, Bill, where do you want to start with the Ripper crew? Yeah, these guys, um, they interest me, and, and please understand that I, I'm i interested because these guys are different. You know, it's rare uh, to have, serial killers are rare to begin with. You don't find them on every street corner. And even rarer is to have two serial killers killing together. It's not unheard of. You know, we have hillside stranglers, we have toolbox killers. There have been a number of people in history where you have two men hunting and sometimes even a man and a woman hunting um sometimes what for the most part they, they always call them a submissive or a dominant doesn't mean that the, the dominant is 
is a dominant like what you're thinking if he's just more aggressive or he has the initiative or he's the, the smarter of the two he comes up with the ideas that type of thing um but to have four four killers working together that is really rare and when i heard of this case uh and i started looking and i thought my god these guys are really unique in what they do these but let's get it straight these guys are cannibals they're rapists they're obviously killer murderers they're necrophiliacs and they're into mutilation as well so i mean there's a lot of things you can really look into with these guys and the, the, the first thing is that what makes them tick you know you don't have four people normally at the same state of mind so we're going to get into that when i come back because it seems going to cut off and i'll be back yeah so these four guys so even if there's a leader which i guess there kind of is who's maybe the organizer kind of almost like cult leader type guy um but they're all equally into it, I'm assuming, because they all participated, right? Yes, but of course, look, and I've said this a number of times, Syracuse are really a funny crew. They like to explain themselves, but they always explain themselves while lessening their position or lessening their role in things. And you have this happen with these guys. Look, it's obvious. All four of them were doing the killings. They were participating in it. And it just wasn't just a guy walking by and shooting somebody, and that was it. You're a driver, you're a shooter, and have two accomplices sit in the backseat watch. This isn't that type of case. This case is four hunters, four uh, predators. They're in a van because they drove around a red van. They would look for victims. Now, was it... Robin Getch, which is one of the guys, because there's four of them. There's Robin Getch, there's Edward Spritzer, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, and then these two brothers, Andrew and Thomas Cocorias, or Cocorias, something like that. Anyways, so these clowns are driving around a van together, and they see a woman, a victim, a potential victim, and they abduct her. Now, all of them are involved. There's mutilation, there's rape, there's torture. So that's very rare because serial killers, one or two, usually have a victim in mind and sometimes take turns. For example, I spoke to to, uh, Lawrence Bitteker and he would tell me how they would pick the women. Once it would be him picking the women and although his crime partner who testified against him play him as the leader and him himself, Norris, as basically the stooge that just went along, that is absolutely untrue. They were both equally uh, complicit in this in those actions. With these guys, it's hard to do with four different guys. Who takes their turn? Who's first? Who picks the women? Are they going in tandem? Like, hey, Robin picks first, the second guy, Thomas, six and second, Andrew picks third. These are, there's a lot of thought going into this. This is very rare because usually you have, as I said, what's going on before two men. With four, every one of them had mutilation, and it's usually mutilation to the breasts. 
Now, all four guys cannot have that particular fetish, but one can. But all the women were mutilated. So, what's going on here? So let's take a look at the wait, case. Wait, wait. Are, are you because, saying are, uh-huh. are you saying that probability wise they can't all have the fetish? Or are you saying that that it wouldn't work as a group if they all had the same one because they want to be the ones to do it? I don't really understand. Yeah, the, the fact that they had a breast fetish and they always mutilate the breast by amputating the breast that is not four guys that's one guy thinking and he is the he is the the leader the guy pushing the envelope that's what that is I'm, I'm imagining that they're all complicit they're all getting into it but they're more supporting what the other guy is doing so what I'm trying to say is it's like guys four guys rob a bank They all want money. They all want to kill. But one of the guys, he likes to run to the camera and do a little jig in front of it. Although all of them are complicit in the robbery, they're not all with that one thing, which is to do a little jig in front of the camera. Remember what I said about signatures? The breast amputation is part of their, their, it's their, it's their it's their signature. It's what gets him off. It's that control factor there. That's one guy's brain. Now, the other ones may participate, but the one guy is the one pushing the envelope. And in my opinion, it's Robin Getch. He is the leader of the crew. And funny enough, because this is a situation where you have a dominant. They're all complicit. They're all equally as, 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 um, as guilty of what they're doing. But in this case, at least in my eyes, if there's a clear-cut picture of who the dominant is, and that's Robin yeah, so can you get into the dynamics of this crew of four guys? It's, um, like you said, probably the leader is Gek. Then the two brothers, so that's interesting in and of itself. And then Edward Spritzer, who might be kind of slow or what they used to call retarded, although sometimes they use that as an excuse, but I would say that he looks pretty dumb. But uh, what do you think, you know, what's the dynamics of this crew? Well, I think that they came together as a Satan cult. cult. They obviously were into the same thing. They talked about the same thing. These guys shared ideas. They were very open with each other. And I believe that this whole thing started with the Satanic Bible of consuming flesh and of, you know, partaking in the taking of flesh and murder and all the things that devil worshippers things are very cool I think that's how this idea started um, so Robin Gitch has a temple or a chapel at his house he initiates that look for us to reach you know the kingdom of freaking hell or whatever we have to do X, Y, and Z and the other guys are very readily involved in it so see this in itself is a little bit different than most serial killers serial killers normally do all these small things to find out who they are. And then they begin to hunt, and they begin to stalk. Usually they become peeping toms, they look through windows as children, they steal underwear. In this crew, none of this stuff happened. So that makes them unique. But they're, they're more vicious than probably most of serial killers I've run across. So what makes them do that? Well, under the banner of Satanism or a Satan cult, a Satanistic cult, they're using the Bible, though the Satanic Bible, as a means for an excuse to do what they want to do. Um, 
and again, I'm taking a, a wild guess here. I am. Uh, I've not met these guys. I haven't spoken to them. But from all the actions and what they did, this is what I'm seeing. And I'm also seeing that there's a lot of inconsistency. There are a lot of inconsistencies in way of law enforcement here and their opinions and what they believe. So let me start off by telling telling you what's going, what happened here. Okay, so they are first suspected of killing. They're suspected of killing 18 or more women. Okay, between 1981 and 1982, that is what law enforcement says. Their first known murder happened around May the 28th, 1981. And this is basically what happened. A maid who was cleaning the Moonlight Hotel in Villa Park, um, and this is a shady hotel. It's known for back alley deals, sex workers uh, do business there, drug deals are made there. So this maid reports that she smells a horrible smell coming from what she believes is in a, a field right behind the hotel. So she tells the hotel manager. The hotel manager then walks out into the field and he discovers not an animal, which, which he believed it was, a deer or something that was decomposing. He finds a young woman. He calls law enforcement and three detectives show up at the location and they find a very badly decomposed body. And it's a murder. they know it's a murder right away because she is handcuffed behind her back. There is a cloth stuck into her mouth. Um, she's still wearing a sweater and her panties, but the panties are pulled down to her thighs. Um, she also has a pair of socks on and a small wad of bills are rolled into her socks. Okay. The, the condition of the body is so badly decomposed that skeletal parts are showing. So you can see the skeleton. So, and maggots are still working on the body. So the, obviously the detectives have a homicide. They have a body. They have a place. So they have to establish two things first and foremost. Number one, time of death. When did this happen? Well, it's very difficult because of the decompos decomposition of the body. And at this time, there wasn't that place in Knoxville, Tennessee called the Body Farm where they can actually establish time of death and all this other stuff. So they concentrate on her identity. But however, again, her condition of body is very badly. So they are, look at dental records. They attempt to uh, align her fingerprints to find out who she is. First and foremost, the clue is the water bills in her socks. Obviously, this was not a murder robbery. The money's there. Money was not the primary uh, motive. In the condition she's in with the, with the um, panties around her thighs, one of her breasts completely amputated. They, they are pretty on, a, on the right track to say that this is a, a, a rape murder. So they start beginning to search hookers and prostitutes that have been arrested in the area. It doesn't take long for them to figure out that this young woman is, and there are different reports. Some say she's 21, some say she's 28. But her name is 
live the sun. And once they find out who she is, they're able to, with dental records and everything and fingerprints, they know who she is, they're able to um, find out she's been arrested a number of times for prostitution. She is the mother of two children. And they also figured out that she was seen alive three days ago. So that's a shocking fact that only three days this advanced composition of the body has taken place. They thought she had been done, I mean, been uh, dead weeks or months or whatever. And again, here is where the police reports are back and forth. They say she was found 10 days later. Some say three days. But the bottom line is the composition took place and it was so far advanced because they amputated her breast. When that happened, parasites were able to get in there and begin to work on the body. And since it's, you know, May, June, it's rather hot, they really began to work 24-7. And in a short time, the body has just decomposed to the level that it's at. Mm -hmm. So you said a cross in her mouth, and uh, I guess the money is obviously some kind of symbol, some kind of statement or whatever. Um, So... This is 1981, right? This is like the whole satanic panic, heavy metal, all that stuff, which is all bullshit for the most part. But I I mean, it seems like these guys were actually into this, into this Satanism thing. Well, yeah, you have a lot of, at that time, there was a lot, there was was something sweeping the nation. All these cults started popping up. You got the Waco, Texas stuff, which was later, but... Yeah, you have people that are in these cults and they think that they're doing the coolest thing and it's almost like a fad. But these guys is different. You know, anybody can say, look, I'm a Satanist and I listen to heavy metal, I dress in black. Hey, look, no harm, no foul, right? But when you start hunting women and doing all these things to them, you're talking about a different animal. You know, a guy who rapes or fantasizes about raping is a different person than the person who actually goes out and starts raping people. Same thing with a person that um, thinks about killing. And it's a difference from the guy who actually goes out and he kills somebody. So, yeah, a lot of people got into Satanism. They thought it was a new fad, new cool, cool thing, heavy metal, all this stuff. But most of these people were just clowns playing around. These guys took it to a really deadly level. They killed. And they, look, for all accounts, 18, 18 women disappeared within that time. Did they do all of them? We don't know. We know for a fact that they were able to tie at least six of those murders to them by their own admittance, by their own uh, actions, by their own confessions. But in my opinion, there's a lot more. And as I said, serial killers like to be forthcoming when it's to their convenience or to their benefit. They don't say a whole lot when it's not to their convenience. Let me call you back. Is there any significance of killing a prostitute and then all this religious symbolism? Because Satanism, you know, there's some occult symbolism and stuff, but it's mostly people that just want to be able to do whatever they want and they're not really into... Puritanism and, and Christianity. So, do you think that there was some kind of statement behind killing a prostitute, or was that just uh, an easy victim? Yeah, in this case, I think it, 
victim of opportunity. These guys are not organized killers. They, what I mean by that is they, they didn't see the victim, stalk her, fantasize about it, do all the things that you do before you take the victim. They basically drove, drove around in a red van. Um, they pulled up alongside people. Of course, the first woman was, in fact, a known sex worker. She had been arrested numerous times for prostitution, and she was on record with the police department. Now, the second person, and there is a lot of, and, and look, we are talking about suspected killings. There were suspected of, there were suspected of killing um, 17 to 18 women. They don't have these women. They, the women were abducted, they're gone. They don't know if these guys were behind every one of these killings. So there is a bit of inconsistency with police reports. And this, let me give you an example. So about nine months after Linda Sutton is found, a 35-year-old cocktail waitress is abducted from her car. It's February 12, 1982. And the car had run out of gasoline. Her purse, her keys were inside the car. So she was probably stranded when these four idiots pulled up alongside of her and abducted her. A search was made of the nearby area and she was found, her nude body was found on an embankment. Uh, she had been raped, tortured, and mutilated. The press was told or asked not to uh, relate or release the fact that her breast had been removed. And, you know, we police do this absolutely interrogate people. They can use that to see if the person knows what really happened or what, what state the body was in to prove that they were involved. Now, other reports say that that was not one of their killings. That actually, a year later, on May the 15th, 1982, Lorraine Borrow, and I'm a mess of name, Borowski, she is about to open the realtor's office where she works, and she disappears. Five months later, she is found in a cemetery in Clarendon, or uh, I, can't even, I don't even know what the name of the, of the cemetery is, but I believe it's um, Clarendon, or Clarendon Hills. It's a cemetery. So again, these are inconsistencies. It's 1981. Law enforcement doesn't really know how DNA works, how to conduct a proper investigation where uh, forensic techniques are being used. This is in the infancy of guys, police officers, law enforcement, collecting evidence. They're making a lot of mistakes. And here, there's a big discrepancy. Was this woman... Uh, Lorraine Borowski or Borowski, the second victim, or is she the third? Or could she be the sixth victim? Serial, I don't believe, Matt, that these serial killers did what they did to Linda Sutton, which was basically mutilate the woman. They, from according to reports, they didn't just cut the breast off. They used a wire garrote, which is they twisted it and twisted it and twisted it until it severed the breast. That is an extremely excruciating, painful, but you have to be a very sick, 
sadistic individual to get off doing that and watching a woman suffer that kind of pain. And this reminds me of the toolbox killers, uh, Bitterker and Norris. They did something similar to this with ice picks and, and pliers, and so they called them the toolbox killers. So I don't believe that these guys killed this woman at this level of, um, you know, mutilation and the aggressiveness and all the things. It looks like their MO is already set. Their signature is set. So that tells me that they're experienced. It also tells me that they've done this before. So I don't believe that they took a year again to kill again. They weren't in jail. They're all working. And by the way, here's a little fun fact for you guys. This guy, Robin Getch, he used to work. And this is straight from the... He used to work for serial killer John Wayne Gacy. How you like that, Matt? Oh, yeah, because Gacy was involved in kind of Teamster stuff and... and contracting and things like that and they're both in chicago so that's kind of crazy do you think they knew that each other were killers yeah it's an interesting question i've been asked that before it's you know it's a guess it's an educated guess so you know serial killers and killers have a particular way of doing things and there's cues there's things that they say the way they act about things however with these two you have two different people with completely different motivations and tastes, and that's the big thing. John Wayne Gacy was a pedophile. He was a child killer of boys, so he was homosexual. John, uh, Robin Getch hunts women. He is heterosexual. That is a pretty big gap right there that is hard to bridge. So. Although they may have worked together, I may I think it may have been coincidental. I don't believe that they were involved with each other because the victims are so different. Now, um, you know, we had an episode some time ago where you had the torso killer and you had Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer, working in the same office. And you asked, could they know each other? At that time, I gave you a different answer. I said, I believe they did know who they, each other were because they had similar victims women they like to do what they do these guys are completely different so i don't think that robin gedge and john wayne gacy were involved in any way shape or form regarding killing but anything is possible but i think it was kind of an interesting fun fact but it remains that these guys are already experienced they killed linda sutton i believe they had done it before or at least attempted to i also believe that they did so in between uh, May of 1981 and May of 1982, they did not go dormant for a year. They were too experienced already to do that. Um, I don't believe so because once they found their trail again in 1982, they they did in succession. They were killing women every two or three weeks or a month or every two months. Boom, 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 boom. They were doing it. So I don't think they stopped. They just didn't find those victims. And one of the crew members actually told of a story when Getch uh, picked up an African-American woman, also murdered her, uh, tied bowling balls to her ankles and threw her in the river. So if this is true, which I believe it is, then these guys, their count is closer to 18 rather than the six or seven or eight that they actually know about. Yeah, 
because the the official narrative, the official um, timeline is, as you just said, that they killed Linda Sutton, and then almost a year to the day, possibly of that murder, or close to it, they're just on a rampage. So, I wouldn't think I wouldn't think a cooling period would take place after one murder, would you? Most serial killers, all serial killers actually, are different. We, we don't know. I get a kick out of when when experts start talking about, well, they wouldn't do this. You have no idea what they would do. I have sat there and spoken to serial killers, and they told me that they, they did something because it just, they watched the movie before the day, and it kind of inspired it. There's no way a cop is going to be able to tell you what that is. So could they have taken a cooling period? Absolutely. Do I believe it? No. I believe they continued to kill. I believe they did abduct that woman of 35 years at the waitress, and I believe they killed her as well. And I believe there's other ones. So, yeah, I believe that they continued to kill, and there was no uh, cooling period. The time frame is inconsistent with what most serial killers do. You know, we have one like BTK. He took periods, very long periods in between uh, and they call it a cooling period. These, though, are different. Their timeline is between 1981 and 1982. I don't see a cooling period that quickly into it and that they came out of it that fast. It just doesn't work that way for me. So let's talk a little bit. I want to get a little more before we go further in the story, but the dynamic of this group here... So Get is 10 to 12 years older than the others. Uh, and everyone kind of pegs him as the leader. The two brothers are two years apart. What's going on with the two brothers? Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting situation. Tommy and Andrew, they're, one of them is, seems to be normal. The other one seems to be very dim-witted. Um, yeah, that's very rare. I mean, again, this is a case that interests me because how rare it is four killers killing together. Two of them are brothers. They all hang out together. One of them is substantially older. 30, he's 30-something years old. He's 12 years younger. The brothers, Andrew and, uh, and Tommy, are teenagers at this time. Look, we've seen killers do this. Uh, a much older killer uh, is able to influence younger killers to do his bidding or participating help. One comes to mind is William Bonney. He actually had three different crime partners at three different times. He was able to find, I mean, how rare is this to find three different kids, teenagers, that would actually help participate in murdering other children. We saw the Candyman do it as well. So it is possible. In my opinion, they're just as complicit because you don't get involved with this type of homicide, this type of crime, mutilation of bodies and women and rape and torture, unless you're already twisted to that, that they could be rehabilitated is absolutely out of the question. It, it can't be. So, yeah, I believe that Getch was the leader. I believe that he influenced these kids in a way. But again, you know, there is a lot to be said about maturity and immaturity but there's also a lot to be said about completely right and completely wrong 
You know, I could see where a kid under the age of 23, 24, whatever, is still a kid. He's immature. He robs a few banks. He's making bad decisions. I get that. But there's a whole different avenue when you're taking lives, not just once, you know, over a fight. This is something you're planning. You're you're driving around. You're looking for victims. You're you're abducting them. Once you get them, you're raping. You're torturing them. You're mutilating them. That takes a lot. And although Getch could have influenced them, ultimately they made the decision to participate. Now there was a lot of talk that these guys were very afraid of Getch. There's rumors, and again, this is a crock of shit, and you know it is. And the audience, you know, Andrew and Tommy and and and, and uh, this guy uh, Edward say that this guy had powers that he could do things. He could find his way into the rooms. He could find their, his way into their lives or their bedrooms as a puff of smoke, as a crock of shit. You know it is. But, I mean, that's what they're saying, that they said this, that he, they were very afraid of this guy. Of course you would say that. Hell, I would say that. It lessens their culpability. Let me call you back. How do you think these guys met? I guess I know how the brothers met. There's not a lot of literature on this that I could find. How do four guys like this just initially end up hanging out and I'm assuming talking about how they want to mutilate women. Well, I, I think it's more than that. I think that the conversation probably started with their, their I guess you, you want to call their their common denominator is the occult. And I think that maybe Robin Getch you know, show these guys, hey, look, this is a, a satanic Bible, or, or look at my chapel at my house. Remember, this guy, Robin Getch, was not just a, some bum that was, he had a family, he had a wife, he had three children. This guy was, a, for all intended purposes, he looked like a normal guy. So I'm assuming that there had to be a common denominator, and I'm thinking that it is the occult. And from there, you know, he's he's the motivating factor. He's like, hey, you know, it talks about consuming flesh. We have to get flesh. How do we get flesh? And that conversation starts. And that's when three minds or four minds begin to work together. He may have suggested kidnapping a woman. But once it starts, you can back out of it. But there's a lot of situations in prison where I saw... The, the beginnings of something happening bad, I, I stepped away from it. I did not want to be involved. Now, I realized that, you know, I was already in prison, but with these guys, I'm thinking the same thing. I know there's peer pressure, but there's a big jump between doing something silly and actually killing somebody and doing it over and over and over. So I think, to answer your question, I think they met over a common denominator, and that was the occult or, or music or something. And from there, it led to different things. All right. Well, we will get into the rest of their crime spree in part two. It's really crazy. Uh, before we wrap it up, Bill, is there anything you want to promote for the listeners? Well, yeah, look, I, yeah, definitely. I appreciate that, Matt. And I want the audience to know that I have a YouTube channel. It's got a lot of my videos, a lot of stuff going on there. You know, please subscribe. Um, there's going to be a lot of stuff happening the next month. I can't tell you what it is, but I promise you, it's 
going to be big, okay? And Matt knows about it. I know about it. We're not talking about it, but it is going to be big. So please subscribe there. Obviously, look at us at Death Row Diaries on Instagram. Sign on that. Go to my website, artistbloomingera.com. Subscribe to my newsletter. It's free. I'm just going to give you information about serial killers that no one else has heard about. It's William Bonnie, Bittaker, all the cast of characters that you guys love to hear about. I'm going to tell you stories you've never heard about. Not even on Death Row Diaries. Subscribe to my newsletter and you'll get some of that information. So, until next time, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm going to start this off by saying I appreciate you guys coming on and listening to us. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it.